This is the Christian Circle Podcast and you're listening to Pamela Fernandez where we have conversations about Christian living. Here's the show. Yeah, he was uh he was born in a Catholic family in uh, Poland in 1894 and his father was of German descent and his mother was Polish. And he uh he was you know it was a Catholic family. It was a very religious upbringing and everything and the thing that uh you know that really strikes me about him I always Whenever I would hear his story, it always kind of st- stood out to me. Was when he was a young child, like eight or nine years old, he had a vision of the uh, Blessed Mother, and she offered him. And he wrote about this too in his own words. She offered him a white and or a red crown. You know, the white crown being chastity and like being a, uh, a priest, you know, mm-hmm. preserving in chastity, and then the red crown being the crown of martyrdom. And she asked him if he would, you know, accept either crown. He said he wanted both. So he knew from an early early age that he was going to be a martyr and uh ended up coming true from kind of reminded me of who was it saint uh saint anthony of padua he went away he tried to go evangelize the uh the moroccans you know the moors in north africa and he couldn't get there because he wanted to go and become a martyr like that was his his goal but it also says that as a as a child he's he's a very mature person right to have made a decision like that and to yeah it's a pretty heavy decision to make you know as, as a young child i'd hate to have to make that decision now in my 30s. <laughs> Never mind as a child. Like, I, I couldn't imagine having that kind of choice offered to me. But to have the clear mind and the presence of mind to say, I'll take both. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's what he done. He went away and he joined the Franciscans and became a friar and eventually a priest and eventually a martyr. And that was an early decision as well, right? To become a priest? Wasn't he? Yeah, he, uh, he was young. I think he was like 17 or 18 years old when he entered the, uh, the Franciscans. And then he had to go away and study. And it, just, it took a few more years before he became a priest. But he was pretty... Yeah, and especially by nowadays standards, most, uh, I don't know about the rest of the world, but in North America, most people's ordained priests in, you know, kind of their late 20s. So he was, he was pretty young. I don't know, maybe that was a standard, standard thing in Europe at the time, but in America, he was definitely young for a priest. So would you say that, um, this vision was basically the turning point in his, uh, ministry and his, his Yeah, I'd say this was, that's kind of what set him on the course that he, mm-hmm. he would go, he would take throughout his life. You know, that was kind of, I guess, the turning point. But he wasn't really turning from anything. It was just, that was what kind of set him on his life path, was that vision. Basically, uh, he was then a priest for all these years, and then how does he end mm-hmm. up being uh, a, a man who, who ends up in the concentration camp? I mean, what really brought him on this journey to, to that point? Right, he, well, he went. He went to uh, Rome, he studied in Rome and stuff, and he uh, had a few run-ins with a couple different people in Rome that made him form this group called the uh, the Knights Immaculata, the, the Knights of the Immaculate Heart. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's still around today, the Catholic organization. And he went away to Japan to evangelize Japan, ended up in Nagasaki, Japan, mm-hmm. and started a friary there. And because of poor health, I think it was tuberculosis, it was some sort of lung condition, he had to come home. And so that's what brings him back in the early 1930s to Poland, back home to Poland. And he had a, uh, in his friary, they had kind of a, like a publishing arm. Mm-hmm. They would publish newspapers and stuff. Mm-hmm. And he ended up getting arrested. The Germans came in after the Germans invaded Poland. They wanted him to sign this paperwork that would acknowledge his German ancestry. Mm-hmm. And it would give him rights as a German citizen, mm-hmm. but was seen as treason by the Poles. Mm-hmm. And... So he wouldn't sign the papers. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it was basically the German ancestry papers. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't sign it because it was treasonous against Poland. And so they arrested him, and he was only in jail. He wasn't in jail that long, and they released him. And he kept doing his thing, kept publishing the newspapers and stuff. And in 1941, he got rearrested, and that's how he ended up in Auschwitz. What was his uh, publishing material like? I mean, there's a lot of, uh, and I, I want to use this to clarify this, because there's a lot of uh, talk that he was uh, against the British. 
when uh, this was a man who actually housed and protected yeah yeah there was there's some talk that he had some anti-semitic leanings but uh, that's been dismissed really by a bunch of uh, a few jewish holocaust like uh, scholars you know they dismiss that and also i mean you're talking about a man that voluntarily gave his life for a jew there was there was a story that uh, one of the people in the little town that his friary was in told uh, during the whole canonization process, because that came up during the canonization process, was did he have anti-Semitic leanings and stuff. And this man came to him and said there was Jews on bread. And he said, is it okay to give bread to Jews? And St. Maximilian said, yes, of course it is, because all men are our brothers. You know, so it didn't, seem, it didn't sound very racist to me, but, you know. There's always people have bad things to say about all kinds of people, but if you're famous enough, there's always going to be detractors, I guess. But yeah, there was, and there was also, uh, there was some sort of talk about there was a uh, kind of a underground Polish right-wing organization that was publishing out of his publishing house, kind of like political pamphlets and tracts and stuff. Mm -hmm. But I mean, they were, they were anti-communist, but they were also anti-Nazi too, so they weren't really in line with the, the whole Nazi party ideology, you know, especially after the Nazis invaded Poland. So that might have been where kind of that gave rise to the allegations of anti-Semitism, but that's been dismissed by a bunch of different scholars. And he had a very strong stance against violence and oppression of uh, all communities, not just the Jews, yeah. but everyone, right? I mean, he was somebody who was very peace-loving at the, at the time. Yeah, he really embodied the whole, you know, the, the love the love your neighbor as yourself. Mm -hmm. He really believed in that. And I mean, as a Franciscan especially, their, their whole spirituality is really just showing the love of Christ to others. And that's really, he excelled at that. He went he wanted to go and evangelize. I think he started a mission in uh, in India, too. I can't remember. Malabar, India, I think it was. He started a, a priory there, too. But he went all through Asia evangelizing, and he, he really wanted to spread the love of Christ to all. That was kind of his motivating concern, was the love of Christ, to show the love of Christ through his own actions, you know. And and what exactly happened then at uh, the concentration camp? I mean, he, he was actually conducting a lot of masses, openly doing stuff that was Catholic, so what exactly happens then that leads leads up to his death? Okay, so in uh, 1941, he's in Auschwitz, which is you know famous for being the the, the worst mass murder place in history. I think 1.5 million people were killed in Auschwitz, mm -hmm. and there's an escape attempt. I don't know if they actually got away or not, but there was an escape attempt, mm -hmm. and the the commandant of the camp decides that he's going to make an example out of prisoners to crack down on this so that there's no you know, so that there's no more attempts at escaping. Mm -hmm. And he picks ten people at random to be starved to death. I can't think of a worse way to kill somebody than to slowly you know, that's pretty the Nazis really kicked it up a notch when it came to cruelty, you know? Mm -hmm. But he picks ten people to starve to death and he just randomly out of the crowd that's gathered. And the tenth person he picks, you know, he cried out, My wife, my kids mm -hmm. and Colby stepped forward and said, I want to die in his place. I volunteer to die in his place. And the commandant turned to him and said, You know, who are you? But instead of and the thing that I really strikes me, and it's always struck me from the first time I heard Colby's story you know, ten or fifteen years ago, he didn't say his name, he didn't say I'm a Polish prisoner, he didn't say he said, I am a Catholic priest. That's how he identified himself. And, and he, he said that in his defense, right? That he was half German, that he couldn't yeah, he could have. He, I mean, he volunteered to take his place. He wasn't even one of the people picked. Yeah. But he, if he had a, probably back in 1939 or whatever year it was that he was first arrested, had he signed that paperwork, yeah. he would have got away scot free. He would have been a German citizen. He wouldn't have been subject to, you know, the kind of things they put him through. They put him to Auschwitz, a death camp. He definitely would have been. I mean, the Germans rounded off, especially in Poland, all the intellectuals and any kind of like poets and artists and any kind of free thinker that they thought might threaten their rule there. Mm -hmm. So we probably would have got picked up anyway, but maybe not sent to a death camp. 
because that's what the office was for. It was just liquidation. And if he had assigned the documents, but he didn't, he, he wanted to be with his people. He wanted to, you know, serve his people. And that's when he said, I am a Catholic priest because priests identify in a special way with Jesus Christ. So they, they act in persona Christi, especially when they're celebrating the mass. And he identified with Jesus in a way, you know, unto death to take someone's place because, you know, Jesus said, greater love has no man than to lay down his life for his friends. And he really, he took that, actually, went with it. You know, where some people would hesitate, or maybe if someone was picked themselves, they would die, you know, as a martyr. But he volunteered to be a martyr. Is there any um, reason why he was sent to uh, this, this, the worst prison of all? Or was it that his writings were so heavily uh, popular or whatever, influential, that he had to be sent? Auschwitz? I don't know, because he, he got first got sent in 41 when he got picked up. He first got sent to a different camp. And then from there, after, I think it was only a few weeks or maybe a month, he got sent to Auschwitz. So I don't know if there was any particular, what the thinking was or why they sent him there. But pretty much, you know, when you got sent to Auschwitz, it was for one reason. What can we learn from um, from his entire life, from his writings, from who he is as a person? Of course, the, the fact that he is a person who sacrificed. But what else is there, uh, you know, in his character that... I think that he really gave himself over to Christ. You know, St. Paul said that I am a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And really, he really did. He gave himself over completely and totally from the time of that vision that he had when he was eight years old all the way until he died when he was 40, I think 47. You know, so for 39 years, he gave himself over completely as a bondservant to Christ and just, he just lived the love your neighbor as yourself. And, you know, Jesus also, and uh, I think it was in John, he told him, you know, a new commandment I give to you. To love others as I have loved you. But if you think about it, how did Jesus love us? Jesus loved us to death on a cross. So that's how he, he ordered his apostles to love each other as he had loved them. And he took those words to heart. And he said, I am a Catholic priest. I will die in the place of this man. The thing I think it really touches me, too, is in 1982 when he was canonized, the man whose place he took was there in Rome at the canonization. Yeah, a life for life. And I also think uh, what, what strikes me about this is that he was open to, I mean, yeah, like you said, he accepts the call, but he's so open to accepting the call throughout, like whenever he's been called. A lot of people would uh, probably think or probably turn away and refuse to, to, to do that, but he says yes time and time, and, uh, time and time again. His decision is yes, yes, yes. Yes, yeah, it, was always, it was always yes. We're going to send you to Japan. Okay, yes. We're going to send you, okay, you're sick now. Go back to Poland. Yes. And that's just just the way he was. He was just, he was very, I, I see it as him being very identified with Christ, yeah. you know, in a very special way. And, and I think one thing that we can learn from that is also, uh, if, if Christ were to ask him, will you die for me? And the thing is, would we really say yes, like like this man did? Because right. he's asked, will you die Yeah, it would be hard, it would be hard to, I mean, I would hate to ever be put in that position, but in, I think in the 20th century, there were more martyrs than any other century of Christendom, you know? But to be put in the spot like in Egypt, just uh, just a couple of months ago, there was a bunch of Coptic Christians going to a uh, a monastery in southern Egypt. They all got pulled off the bus, and one at a time, they were asked to renounce Jesus, and every one of them refused, and they all got shot. And they knew it was coming. They seen the person in front of them get shot, and they willingly accepted that, because Jesus said, you know, take up your cross and follow me. That wasn't just about suffering. That was about following him all the way, being willing to go all the way like that. And it would be one thing to have a gun to your head and to to accept that. But I can't even imagine what he did to volunteer to put yourself in that situation. And that really is, I mean, that's, he laid down his life. And for a person who didn't even know, he didn't even know that man's name. 
that he took his place. You know, he was a Catholic priest, and he took the place of a Jew. They wouldn't have really crossed paths too much in the camps. So he he voluntarily took a place. So if that's greater love, has no man to lay down his life for his friend. What's it to lay down your life for a stranger? Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's even that's another step above. Yeah. Uh, also, I I think he's um is he one of the uh, patron saints for social media communicators and things like that? Is he? A, uh, I know he's a patron saint of drug addicts because of the way he ended up dying. And uh, he's a patron saint of the 20th century. John Paul II declared him that. Yeah, I think he's also for social media communication. Social media. A stand about something that was important at the time, and and I think right. another thing that we can learn from from him is that you can't stay quiet. You're either for Christ, or with Christ, or against Christ. Oh, yeah. it's, it's not really. Yeah, there's no yeah. there's no neutrality in this world. Yeah. You know, you can't really stay on the sidelines. Yeah, because it's you know we always think about sin as something you do. You know, like as an act, as an active, active will. But most sins in our day and age is passive. It's a sin of omission, not a sin of commission. And I think of it all the time. Every time I pass somebody on the street, and I think I could have gave that, I could have just, you know, smiled at that person, and I didn't. You know what I mean? Like just the kindness that we don't show to our fellow man. It really, that's, that really, I think that's the majority of sins nowadays is what you could have done for somebody, but you didn't, rather than what you did do to somebody that was wrong. You know, and that's what he. He didn't miss an opportunity to take a stand for what was right and to do the right thing and to go out of his way to do the right thing. And that really is an inspiration. How many? I thought uh, he had housed uh, 2,000 Jews at his. Uh, yeah, at his priory. That was before he was arrested, yeah. So, I mean, not just he directly saved the life of one man, but yeah. kind of indirectly by feeding and housing and hiding Jews, he saved the life of over 2,000, too. Yeah, if you were caught hiding Jews, that was just. Especially if the Gestapo caught you hiding Jews, it was just instant. They would take you out and shoot you in the street. So it wasn't even like there was no there's no such thing as a trial or any kind of like that's it you just get shot you know so he could have and they had no respect for the fact that he was a priest like they gathered up they killed thousands of priests especially in Poland they were trying to completely liquidate Poland the Nazis and they were trying to erase all Polish heritage and they were trying to make Poland a nation of slaves he's just a uh, you know Maximilian Kolbe is just one of the great Polish saints especially of the 20th century, but of all time, really, you know, Poland's produced a lot of great saints. If you think about it, Poland was subjugated by, it was split in three parts by the, uh, during, like, the Napoleonic era, mm -hmm. and never became an independent country, until, again, until 1920, but the only thing that kept the, the Polish national, you know, identity together was the Catholic Church in Poland. It was the glue that kind of held society together, and then from 1920 to 1939, I think, mm -hmm. they were an independent country, but then the Nazis invaded, the Nazis and the Russians, and the Nazis and the Russians fought over Poland. And then the Soviets took over, and you know, it was an Eastern Bloc country behind the Iron Curtain. And so they were oppressed by one brutal killing regime, the Nazis, and then that was just replaced by the Soviets. So they went from out of the frying pan into the fire, really. And then for, for all that, and for them to hold together and keep their faith, and then when John Paul II became Pope, it just, hope exploded, you know. And that was just, that was the end of the, end of the uh, Soviet rule in in Poland is when he came back to Poland and kissed the ground, that was it. He's also a good example for, I think, a lot of people who are suffering in various parts of the world today uh, going through similar circumstances, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, there, there's, there's so many changes, wars, and things like that going on. I think he's one of the, the great examples of how you survive or how you go through this. Yeah. Like I said, he, he really he survived through the world. Well, he didn't survive all the way, but he, he lived through you know, the worst that human existence has ever seen in Auschwitz. He gave his life for another man and he didn't let he didn't let the evil and the darkness around him overcome him it would be it would be really easy to be in a place like a nazi death camp and lose hope you know but he didn't he held on to hope and he knew that hope was in christ 
and that's where he kept his eyes fixed upon, and that's you know, that's what led him to his final reward, you know. What are some of his uh, famous uh, quotes and and uh, popular uh, literature that he's written on his head? He was he was a big proponent of uh, Eucharistic adoration, and uh, you know that's something I've been getting into. I did something that I, before I became Catholic. I hadn't even heard of it, <laughs> loosely. And so it's something I've really been trying to get more into and trying to do, you know, at least once a week. And uh, he said, it's one of my favorite quotes about the Eucharist at all, where he said, if angels could be jealous of men, it would be for one reason, Holy Communion. You know, we get to receive Jesus' body, blood, soul, and divinity every time we you know, receive the Eucharist. And I thought that was that was really a wonderful quote. And another one he said was, too, was the poison of our time is indifference. You know, it was indifference that allowed Hitler to rise in Germany. It was indifference that allowed the Germans and the, the Soviets to split Poland in half and just divvy it up. It was indifference, just the world kind of looking the other way and saying it's not our business, you know? What about his devotion, uh, his Marian devotion? I mean, she visited him when he was a child, and then throughout his, uh, his writings reflect that uh, she'd been with him on, on his journey. Oh, yeah. He was very Marian. Another, uh, yeah, there was another quote that he had was that, uh, don't ever be scared of loving Mary too much because you can never love her as much as her son. Mm. <laughs> and he said, uh, who was the one about, oh, he who, uh, he who refused to have the blessed mother as mother can't have Christ as his brother. You know, so he was very, very big into Mary and devotion, but that was what the, uh, the Knights Immaculata, they, they're still around, like I said, you can still join them. And he formed them early on in his, I think, I don't even know if he was a priest yet when he formed him. He might have still been in seminary in Rome. It was to pray for the conversion of the enemies of the church through the Immaculate Heart of Mary. That was the purpose of, of that. Was, you know, the church militant were supposed to be out there fighting the battles, but not, not physically. Just pick up a sword and go strike, just strike, strike and heretics over the head. But spiritually, you know, it's, we battle not against flesh and blood, but against darkness and power and principalities. And so that's what he, he took up the sword of the spirit was you know, being a warrior in the spirits, basically. What literature did you, um, did you use to read about? And if people want to read more about his life and his uh, writings, where can you find it? Yeah, there's uh, a good book. You can get it. I think you can get it on Catholic Answers Shop or maybe IgnatiusPress.com. It was called Forget, Forget Not Loved by Andre Fassard. That was a good one. And then uh, another one that I kind of skimmed through years ago, it's when I first heard of Maximilian Kolbe, it was called Maximilian Kolbe, the Saint of Auschwitz. I can't remember who wrote that, though. And is there anything else about about him that you remember? That... Don't be indifferent to the suffering of your fellow man. You know, that is, it was the poison of his time in the 20s, 30s, and in the first couple of years of the 1940s, and it still is today. Indifference really is, yeah, it's worse today than it was then, even. You know, because now we're so interconnected globally and still... You, know, you can see suffering around the world and just shrug it off and flip to the next Facebook post. Yeah. You know, it really is. It's the, the more the world becomes connected, the more we become disconnected from from people. You know, you think of Maximilian Kolbe as a martyr and a great promoter of you know Eucharistic adoration or Marian devotion, but really, when I think about him, I think being willing to go the distance for another person. You know, we're all made in the image and likeness of God. Mm-hmm. He wasn't even the same religion as the person he chose to die for. He wasn't the same ethnicity as a person. You know, there was nothing. They had nothing in common except for the fact that they were both imprisoned by a murderous regime, and he chose to die for him anyway. You know, and that's amazing because the only person I chose to die for were my children, but he chose to die for this complete and utter stranger. And so that's just don't give in to indifference. Care for people. Care about suffering in the world. Pray for people. Pray for the conversion of sinners. And that's really what he was all about. I also wanted to uh, this. I it was I think a bit of trivia, but uh, mm. somebody mentioned that uh, when Nagasaki was bombed, his prayer. Uh-huh. His priory was the only one that didn't get affected by. Yeah, yeah, I heard a story about that. It was uh, when he was building the friary in Nagasaki, 
he they told him to build it on this one side of the hill, you know, facing the city and all that. And he said, no, I want to build it on the other side of the hill. And they told him, like, no, there's bad spirits, like the local, you know, native Shintoism or whatever said, like, no, don't build it over there. And he said, no, he had some sort of, like, either an intuition or a vision or something to build it on the other side of this mountain. And then when, when we dropped the bombs in Nagasaki, it obliterated the city. But his friary was completely untouched because it was on the other side of the mountain. Had it been where they told him to build it, it would have been vaporized. So, yeah, I thought that was that was a pretty good yeah, little bit of trivia. <laughs>